Hello and welcome to the Prospect Sermons podcast, the preaching ministry of Prospect Baptist Church. This podcast is dedicated to the faithful exposition of the scripture and the edification of the local church. This is Parker Smith, Senior Pastor of Prospect Baptist, located in Fayetteville, Tennessee. Our prayer is that the sermon you are about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you toward the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. Again, and so um, love to see our kids exit as as they do each week. And so, thank you, Scott, and thank you, Kim, for leading us in worship. If you are a guest with us, um, I want to say a word of welcome. Uh, my name is Parker. I'm the senior pastor here, and I'd love for you to fill out that little uh, perforated card in your bulletin. Fill it out, leave it with us, and we'd love to pray for you, get to know you, and uh, follow up with you accordingly. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn them on or turn them to uh, the Gospel of John. This morning, going to be a standalone uh, message, and uh, going to try to tie up some just um, some things that I've been talking about, really focusing in from a different angle in John six, and I think that'll make sense in just a moment. But there are many um, parallels that John is bringing out in this text from the rest of the Gospel of John. But all in, this is coming on the tail end of a very famous narrative and the scene within the New Testament, namely Jesus feeding uh, the five thousand with five loaves and two fish, and then walking on the water. He has this. I am statement that he gives to them. I am the bread of life. And so Jesus's ministry is growing. There's, there's as many as 5,000 that are following him, so to speak. And so he says something in the midst of that, that really erupts things. It's, it's the people begin to just rock to the core because of what Jesus says. And they begin to walk away not to follow him anymore, and they won't follow him again. And so this morning, I'm going to look at a really a difficult text, a tough text uh, this morning, and uh, I'm going to be primarily uh, John 6, verses 52 through 65, uh, but know that I will use all of John 6 this morning and try to weave kind of the chapter uh, together in this message. And so just bear with me, we're going to look at primarily John 6, a good bit of scripture, and so just be prepared for that. And so if you would, out of honor and reverence of God's word, would you stand in the reading of his word this morning? This is John 6, uh, verses 52 through 65. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to him, do you too take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are life and spirit, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe him 
and though who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. This is the word of God. If you believe it, say amen. 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 Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. That Jesus would go before us in this text and that he would make a way for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. And so, Father, we pray that by your spirit, we would receive your word, we would hear it in faith, and that we would walk away changed. We would apply it to our lives, for it does not return void, it accomplishes what it sets out to do. So, Father, do a work in us. Do a work in our heart through the preaching of your word. Convict us of sin, convict us of wrongdoing, convict us of our need of Christ and our need for repentance. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I want to call your attention to several things this morning. We'll walk through this text, but number one, I want to call you into something that is exclusive. If you're taking notes, you see the bulletin on the back of your bulletin. There's five points, something exclusive, something universal, something spiritual, something greater, and something to the side. But number one, something exclusive. I get this from verse 53, this exclusiveness of Christ, the exclusiveness of Jesus' claim. We live in a day that no one likes to hear things that are exclusive. They like to think that Jesus is all-encompassing and that Jesus would never exclude. Yet in this text in John 6, 53, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. An exclusive statement of Jesus, unless you do this, this will not happen. The prayer that we pray every single week, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Exclusivity from the person of Jesus Christ. There is no other way someone can be saved except through Christ. Jesus says in Luke 17, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and his mother and his wife and his children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Therefore, in third verse 33, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciples. Jesus time and time again makes exclusive statements about what it means to follow him. If you don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. You won't live if you don't do this. You want life? You must do this. Eat my flesh and drink my blood. People don't like exclusivity. It's offensive. It offends. We live in a postmodern world that my truth is relative and what's true for you may or not be true for me. But in this, all roads will lead to God. And Jesus says, no, there's exclusivity in me. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do? Jesus says, well, I will. There's an exclusive statement that if you want to follow me, there is a particular way that you must follow me. If you want to be my disciple, if you want life, you must do this. And if you want to be saved, you must fall headlong in love with Jesus Christ. He is the only way that we can be saved. And he continues to give us more exclusive statements in this text in John 6. It is furthermore exclusive to only those who the Father gives. 
Look at John 6, verses 35 and 37. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 44, or 43 and 44, Jesus answers them, said, do not grumble among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent him draws him. The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right in this discourse of eating flesh and drinking blood, the response of the crowd, they're looking at each other. The Jews have been dispute amongst themselves, saying, how can this man give us flesh to eat? The disciples hear Jesus saying these things, that no one can come to him unless the Father grants him that he must eat flesh and drink his blood. The disciples heard it in verse 60 and said, this is a hard saying. This is difficult for us to swallow. It's difficult for us to digest. But Jesus, knowing that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, did you take offense to this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. Jesus reiterating that truth in John 64. John 6, 64. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning of those who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. Here's the exclusivity again. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. This is a difficult, this is a tough statement. Many of us would not understand it. Many of us don't see it. We don't recognize it. We can't believe. How can they not believe? Because God has not granted them life and belief. It has not been given to them by the Father. And how dependent we are to understand the things of God. How dependent we are for salvation, for discipleship, for opening up our eyes to the gospel. How dependent we are that God open up our eyes. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. God saving them. God doing a work in them. Peter Jesus comes to him and he says, who do people say that I am? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And Peter comes up with this statement. He says, you are the Christ. We believe who you are. He says, you are blessed, Peter. But flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my Father in heaven revealed it to you. You're blessed, Peter. He didn't have to. He didn't have to reveal that to you, Peter, but he did in his grace and how grateful we should be that God has opened up our eyes if we are saved this morning, that God has done a work in our heart and it removes all arrogance from us. That Peter can't say, look at me, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer. No, Peter, it was revealed to you. It wasn't that you were smarter, that you deserved it. It was revealed to you by grace and by mercy. That God, our Father in heaven, saved us. Where is your boasting in that? Answer, you have none. But it would drive us to our knees. It would drive us to our knees if we really believed this. That all earthly cognitive reasons alone cannot create a believer. And I'm convinced that We've lost our sense of 
prayer in the church and we've lost our sense of just being open and just praying to God with earnest sincerity. God, will you save? Because we reduce salvation to a work of man rather than a work of God. But if we get this picture that only God can save, it would drive us to our knees and say, God, would you save sinners? And we've reduced salvation to human cunning or easy believism. And who needs prayer when you have those things? Who needs prayer when you can manipulate someone? Who needs prayer when you can give them a free t-shirt to be baptized? Who needs prayer when you can just get them to repeat after you? Who needs prayer when we have all the worldly means of church growth strategies at our fingertips? Who needs prayer when we have it taken care of, God? But we don't have him taken care of. And John 6 drives us to this reality that salvation, we are dependent upon God to open up our eyes. Therefore, we should pray that God would do that. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 9. Like I said, I've been hinting at a lot of these texts. Flip over to Romans 9. I want to pull something out very strongly this morning that I haven't the last couple of weeks in appealing to Romans chapter 9. Paul says, I have a love for a people. I have a love for my kinsmen. I have a love for my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My own conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Listen to the language that he says. He says, I'm, 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 I have anguish in my heart. I have sorrow in my heart. They're not saved. He says in verse 3, listen to this. For I myself wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you hear what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's seeing real people. He's seeing a Jewish people. He's seeing a neighbor. He sees his brothers and sisters, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And he says, they're not saved. And I wish I could be cut off. I wish I could be accursed. I wish I could be condemned. I wish I weren't saved so that they could be saved. That's the type of love that he has for these people. He says, they're my kinsmen. They're my brothers. They're my sisters. These are my people. I love them. I care about them. I'm so brokenhearted that they have rejected Christ. I have great sorrow. I have unceasing anguish in my heart. I myself wish that I could be cut off and accursed so that they might be saved. Do you have someone that you think about when you consider that line of thinking? Your brother, your sister, your mother, your own father, your children, a grandmother, a neighbor, a kinsman, according to the flesh that you love and say, God, I wish that I were cut off. I wish that I were cut off and that, that you would save them. And my prayer is that seeing Romans 9 and to see John 6, that you would be driven to your knees to pray for those who have not trusted Christ and that God would save them. Folks, if he does not save them, they will perish. And so, Father, would you save them for believers to pray in this way?
that we would live, that we would pray. It would change the posture of every church in the land if we begin to realize and see that only God can save and we look to him to save and say, God, would you save sinners? Would you save my brother? Would you save my sister? Would you save my mother? Would you save my father? Would you save those that are all around me that are perishing? Would our hearts be broken for those in sin to the point that we care enough to pray about them? And we would drive to our knees to pray that God would save them because he's the only one that can. Would you pray to that end, church, for your kinsmen according to the flesh that are cut off and are without Christ? Point number two, something exclusive, also something universal. I get this from verse 54. In the midst of this statement, Jesus also brings this exclusivity, but also a universal statement. It says, John six fifty four. whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. Exclusive in that only those that the Father grants, but also universal. I'm not discriminating upon race or ethnicity or background or gender, nothing. You want to come, come. A universal call of the gospel that whosoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus says to the woman at the well in John 4, everyone who drinks of this water will never thirst again, but whoever drinks of this water I give her will never be thirsty again. This does not negate the drawing of the Father, but certainly emphasizes the free gift of God for all who believe. And this is what the Pharisees and the scribes, they would get so mad and angry at Jesus when he would do this. He would eat with sinners and tax collectors. Who does this Jesus think he is forgiving their sin? We have Abraham as our father. Who is this eating with sinners and tax collectors? Jesus welcoming them. What is he doing? He's saying, I'll give them life. Jewish people, Gentile sinners, tax collectors. Jesus says, I don't care. Come, whosoever comes. And they took offense to this, like many others do in the scripture. They took offense to the whosoevers. Religious people getting upset, becoming just like the older brother in Luke 15. What'd they ever do for you? I killed the fattened calf, and yet you want to extend grace and mercy to those that don't deserve it? And they become pharisaical in their mindset. They become those that are indignant towards the whosoevers. Lord, help us, church. Lord, help us if we ever reduce this gospel to exclude others. Let's proclaim a big gospel. Let's proclaim a big gospel with the only Savior who can save to the uttermost and no rebel is beyond his redemption and no sinner is so beyond redemption that they cannot be saved. Every sinner does not have to perish that they can be saved by the blood of Christ and that our God is a God who will save to the uttermost. Let's preach a gospel to whosoevers as well. Something exclusive, something universal, but also something spiritual. Jesus is saying these words and the crowd is taking back. And I believe that Jesus is, is in one sense being very literal with them. He's being very literal with them, but he's not teaching divine cannibalism. If you look in Leviticus chapter 17, what you'll see there is a command not to eat or drink the blood of an animal. 
He's not calling these people to sin. He's not asking them to, to sin. They, they misunderstood them. Jesus says in John 6, 52, the Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can he give us flesh to eat? And yet Jesus saying, you know, you're misunderstanding me. He's saying, in one sense, I'm being so serious with you. I'm being very literal about this, but I'm not talking about eating flesh and blood. I'm speaking about something else. And I want to show you this through a parallel of John chapter 3, a very familiar passage that we know very well. So flip over to John 3, and I want you to see the common language that's used, the common pattern that's used, and also a very similar misunderstanding within these two texts. And I'll try to bring that out as much as I can. Note the language, note the pattern, note the misunderstanding that's being done there with Nicodemus and with this crowd. This is John 3. Jesus answered him, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So truly, truly, I say to you, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter into his, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, there it is again. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. He's saying, I'm being, I'm being so literal with you right now, Nicodemus. You, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. I am so serious about this. You want to be saved? You want to be in the kingdom of God? You have to be born again. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? He's, mis he's, he's misunderstanding, just like the crowd. How can these things be? Jesus said to them, are you a teacher? Are you the teacher in Israel yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. What if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? The crowd saying, do you, Jesus said, do you take offense of this? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Do you see the parallel that he's doing there? No one can ascend into heaven except who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, and whoever believes in him have eternal life. And in John 6, this notion again of truly, truly, I've said to you, I'm being so literal with you right now. I am being so specific and intentional. You must eat and drink his blood or you will not have life. But I'm not talking about eating physical flesh. I'm talking about feeding on the true bread of life. And he makes that point explicitly clear as he continues in verses 54 through 57. Watch what he says in John 6, 54 through 57. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true blood. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, here it is, abides in me and I in him. It is about abiding in Christ. And he makes it all the more clear in verse 57. As the Father sent me and I live because of the Father. Watch this. So whoever feeds on me, he also 
There's the connection. So whoever does this also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus says, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about abiding. As the living Father sent me and I live because the Father, so also, in that way, so also you will live because of me. He's making parallel. He's paralleling the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and relating that to say, this should be your relationship with Jesus and his followers. What is it about? Is it about a relationship with the Father and the Son and us having that relationship with Jesus Christ? And what that relationship looks like, the love, the obedience, the surrender, the oneness that, that God sent Jesus and gives, gives him life and therefore we feed on Christ and that we live because of him. John 5, 1, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing on his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son does likewise. What's my father doing? That's what Jesus said. What's my father doing? I want to do that. John 5, 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. I seek to do my father's will, Jesus says. John 12, he says, what do I say? I look to my father. John 14, I don't have any authority, but only that authority that God gives me. He gives me the power that I need to speak. John 6, 38, he says, I don't live out of my own will, but of the will of one who, him who sent me. Luke 22, he says, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever you say, I'll do. However you lead me, that's how I live. When Jesus is in the wilderness being tempted by the enemy. In Matthew chapter four, after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, He's in the wilderness being tempted with bread for food. And Jesus says to him, he says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's not about bread. It's about my father. Jesus says, I live because the father lives. I look to him for everything. I love him. I love feeding on my father for life and for purpose. And so also, so also in that same way, whoever feeds on me will live because of me. Jesus is talking about discipleship. He's talking about fellowship. He's talking about loving to feed on Jesus for life and for substance. He's talking about obedience. He's talking about being satisfied in Christ, looking to him, following him, feeding on him. He says, I will give you life. But this crowd wasn't interested in that. They wanted gifts, not the giver. John 6, 26 Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your loaves and you were filled. John 6, 32 through 34, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one he comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said, sir, give us this bread always. We want the bread. We want the bread. We want the bread. We want the gifts. Jesus said to them, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They weren't interested in Jesus. They were interested in what Jesus could do for them. They were interested, they were looking for a handout. They were looking for, give me, give me, give me. They weren't satisfied in Christ. They were satisfied in the stuff that he could give to them. And Jesus wouldn't stand for it. And there is a gospel that is being preached in this country and all around this world, the prosperity gospel that is absolutely demonic. That Jesus is a way to get rich quick. And Jesus won't stand for it. Jesus didn't come to merely give you bread. He came to be bread for you. He didn't come to just merely give you all your desires. He came to change your desires so that your main desire would be him looking to him for life. And they took offense to what he said and they grumbled about it and they were angry because they didn't get what they wanted. How angry we become, how people will become when we don't get our stuff. But the point is bigger than prosperity. The point is about discipleship. The point is about abiding. Christian, are you abiding in Christ? Are you abiding in his person? Are you abiding in his word? What are you feeding on? The world that God made and is fallen and darkened or his word? Have you become famished spiritually? Have you forsaken your true source of sustenance? Have you wandered away from Christ and pursuing his word? And Jesus says, feed on me, abide in me. Christian, are you abiding? That's the question. Something exclusive, something universal, something spiritual, something greater, point number four. There's something greater than bread and there's something greater than life. John 6, verse 58 through 59. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Jesus is teaching in a Jewish synagogue to a Jewish audience, familiar, very familiar with the Old Testament. And it's possible that the reading of the day or certainly within reasonable proximity would have been a reading from the book of Isaiah, maybe chapter 54 or maybe even Exodus chapter 16 about Israel's wilderness wandering and about God supplying them with manna. Certainly it would have been familiar to this audience. Jesus knows this story and he knows that the audience knows the story that he's referring to, that God is supplying his people with bread in the wilderness. And Jesus points this out and he says, it's not about bread. It's not, it's not about bread. It's not about physical bread. I'm not talking about bread. It's about God giving life to his people, just as he did in the Old Testament. So now he is doing it through me. I'm talking about walking, feeding on me, being satisfied in me, being dependent on me. You want to be my disciple, eat my flesh, drink my blood. You can come and be satisfied in me and me alone, but it's not earthly bread. There's a greater bread, the bread of Jesus, the bread of Christ. I am the true bread 
and God giving life to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is something greater than bread. There's also something greater than life. John 6, 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He continues in John 6, 63, 660 through 63. His disciples hear it. And they say, this is hard. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you too take offense to this? And he asked them a question. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are life or spirit and life. Jesus says, if you can't comprehend this, if you can't comprehend this statement, how in the world are you going to comprehend what's going to take place at the resurrection and what's going to take place at the return of Christ? Jesus is speaking, looking forward to the cross, and he's saying, seeing his completed and finished work, his offering to the world, a sacrifice for the whole world. He says, I'm about to change the course of human history. I'm going to lay my life down. I'm I'm going to be slain and crucified because of sin. And if you feed on me, if you depend on me, I promise you, though you die, you will live. I will give to you life. If you trust in this world and you pursue the things in this world, you will die and you will perish just like this world. But if you look to Christ, if you look to Christ to save you, I will give you life. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come to give you life and to say that you would have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd, Jesus says, and I'm laying down my life for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father, I laid down my life for the sheep. And Jesus is giving to us something greater than life. It's life abundant and life eternal. Something greater is here but lastly, this morning, something to decide. At the end of this message, it left the crowd with a decision that was not made. You see that in the text. I'll say that again. It was, uh, the crowd was left with a decision that was not made. I'll give you bread. You'll never be hungry. I'll give you drink. You'll never thirst. I'll give you life. John 6, 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was that who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Judas, at least in John's mind here, is in many ways a picture of this crowd standing before Jesus. Many who would claim to follow him, but would have no true love for him. They would maybe show the appearance of godliness, but it was really empty. It was deceptive. They claimed to love God, they claimed to follow Jesus, but their hearts were gripped by this world. Look at John chapter 12. You see a picture of the heart of Judas. In this moment, six days before the Passover, John 12 and verse 1, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, verse 2. So they gave 
a dinner for them there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one who was reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from nar and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's worship going on. There's gratitude. There's sincerity. There's true fellowship of Jesus. There is true surrender. There is true love for the Savior that is going on. That Martha is worshiping. Mary is worshiping. They're loving the Lord. This, this, this fragrance is filling the house. You could feel it. You could smell it. You could see it. But Judas Iscariot, verse 4, one of his disciples who was about to betray him, said, why is this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Watch this. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he helped himself well, that sounds like that crowd just helping themselves. He helped himself to whatever that was put into it. And no decision was made by this crowd because they loved the world. They loved all the stuff that Jesus could give to them, but they did not love Jesus. They merely just wanted their needs met. But they didn't want it to cost them anyway, anything. They just didn't want to have to beg for food any longer. They didn't want to have to beg for bread. But oh, they loved Jesus if they could get 30 pieces of silver. They loved the stuff God could give them. They didn't love God. And he turns to this crowd and he says, here's an invitation for those who want to love me. Those whose heart have been captivated by the Father for me. Not those who merely just want glamour or status. Jesus says to them, he says, if you want to be a Christian that just earns you a reputation and not follow me, this isn't for you. But it is for those who truly love me, who truly believe in me, who God has opened up their eyes, who God has drawn them by the Father, and they, they are believing and trusting in Christ. And so I point you to the scriptures this morning. In verse 47, truly, truly, I say to you, or let's go 28 first. They said to me, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him who has sent me. Whoever believes in me will have eternal life. I am the bread of life. The fathers that ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But whoever feeds on me will live forever. This is the work of God that you believe that you would receive Christ. The promise that God is giving here of eternal life is contingent upon belief, upon faith. Faith that God ultimately gives. And how this divine truth of divine drawing God's sovereignty and human responsibility to trust Christ, how it works together is a profound mystery. But it is crystal clear in the scripture and they are not at odds with one another. But they work together and also bring a great comfort in that number one, God saves and only God saves. Secondly, reminds us and points us to the goodness of God. Who else would you want to be in charge of something so vital as salvation? And number three, God's work is unmistakably transforming. 
that the work of God is only a work that he can do. And you may be looking right now or thinking right now, well, how do I know that I'm saved? And God's word would point us to not only our conversion, but also the inner witness of the Holy Spirit in our life. But thirdly as well, the fruit of your life. This is what 1 John points us to. Do you love God? Do you love his word? Do you love his people? Do you walk in light and not in the darkness? Do you love his word? Do you look to him, depend upon him? Do you follow him? And even today, I know that in a room this size, I gotta believe that God's Holy Spirit is at work in someone's heart, wooing you, convicting you of sin and, and judgment, revealing to you your need for the Savior and as a substitute for your sin, I believe that God is actively at work in someone's heart even now. In my encouragement, I implore you to believe, to repent, and to believe. We sang a song last week, a brother reminded me of it, and I looked up the history of that song and the origins. It was a song I have decided to follow Jesus. The origins of that song came after the Welsh revival in a missionary movement in Northeast India, in a missionary effort of missionaries going into a very violent village. And the gospel was preached and proclaimed, and one in particular, a father, a mother, and two boys received Christ. They repented of their sin and they trusted Christ for salvation to follow him in obedience. And when the chief heard of this family repenting of their sin, he went to the family and he brought it before all the people and he says, you gotta renounce this faith. You got to renounce this name that we've never heard of. And the father refused. He says, no, I have decided to follow Jesus. And at the word, the chief gave his command to shoot two arrows and kill the young children. And he says, you have to renounce this faith. You have to renounce this Jesus. And as the boys are dying on the dirt ground, the father looks up and he says, no turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. The chief then turns, he gives orders, and the wife is shot. And the husband is standing there now all alone, and the chief says, you must renounce. And the man says, the cross before me, the world behind me, I have decided to follow Jesus. And at the end of John 6, this great miracle that is performed to the crowd followed by this very difficult and tough saying, this hard path of discipleship, fellowship of Jesus, the crowd examines the cost and they said, it's just not worth it to me. And some of even his own disciples turned back and they said, I'm, we're not walking with him anymore. The cost is too high. And Jesus turns to the 12 and he turns to them without apology and says, do you want to go away as well? And Peter's response is, where else would we go? Where else would we go? We believe, we know that you're the son of God. We will follow you regardless of the cost. And I say that to say that there are some of you here in this room today that you are living just that, that you will follow Jesus regardless of what it costs you. There are others who have just simply prayed a prayer. Maybe you've attended a religious gathering out of habit. Maybe you even got some good out of church, but you realized a very, very long time ago that you really didn't have to risk much and follow Jesus in this society. So you opted to be comfortable rather than to be conformed. And you have not truly believed. You love yourself more than you love Christ. 
And then there are others who would maybe even say right now, I don't care what it costs me. I'm tired of living for myself and I want to follow Christ today. And if the Spirit of God is moving, won't you come? Won't you come? If the Spirit is moving, you're saying, I want life. I want to be satisfied. I want to be saved. I want to be reconciled to God. I need a Savior. I need Jesus. Would you respond in repentance and faith today? Would you respond in believing this gospel? And so as we conclude, it's the final plea to say, would you repent of your sin and trust Christ? Beloved, I want to apologize. This mic is slipping down, but I want to invite you this morning to respond as this text is inviting us to respond. That for many of you who have trusted Christ, that you have brothers and sisters and family members and neighbors that know not Jesus. How long has it been since you've gone and fell to your knees and prayed for them? And said, God, would you save them? And really believe, God, only you can do it. Say, God, I'm looking to you and I want to take this seriously because I can't. I can't do it. And so, God, would you do it? Maybe today you would want to come and you would want to pray for a non-believer that you so desperately love that you yourself wish that you were accursed and cut off for Christ for the sake of your kinsmen according to the flesh. Maybe you need to repent of your idolatry of self in your idolatry of stuff and elevating the gifts that God gives you over the giver himself. And then thirdly, maybe today you need to respond in repentance and faith and trust Christ. But I believe God is speaking to us this morning through his word, convicting us. And I just merely want to invite you to come, to come and pray, to come and respond, to come and repent, and to come and trust Christ. Let's pray together. Well, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Prospect Sermons podcast. If you'd like more information about Prospect Baptist Church, you can visit our website at prospectbaptistchurch.org, or you can find us on Facebook by searching Prospect Baptist Church, Fayetteville, Tennessee. If you live in the Fayetteville area, we would love for you to join us in worship on Sundays at 1030 a.m. If you're not comfortable doing that at this time, we understand, but please know we are live streaming our services on Facebook Live. We do hope to see you soon and look forward to you worshiping with us. Until next time on the Prospect Sermons Podcast.